Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. There's a new report out on disabled students, another one on the diversity of governance. Uh, We've got the registration of a new or not-so-new provider, and we catch up with what's been going on at Tory party conference. It's all coming up. Yeah, Doncaster has uh, Doncaster College has 5,000 learners in higher education. So this idea that, one, we don't have a university, um, but two, too many people are going to university in that area. I mean, th- th- everything just starts to clash very, very loudly uh, in this debate around Goodhart and this idea that you have to leave home to get on in life. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson. I'm still self-isolating up here in the attic, but here to make sense of everything going on this week. As usual, we have two fabulous guests in Walthamstow this morning. Anne-Marie Canning is Chief Exec at the Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your highlight of the week? Um, uh, My highlight of this week, I think it's actually yet to come. I'm speaking at the Oracy 21 conference this afternoon. Um, which is all about accent diversity. So I'm really looking forward to that this afternoon. Tune in at uh, 4pm. Excellent, will do. And on campus in Coventry, Ian Dunn is provost at the University of Coventry. Ian, your highlight of the week? Well, my highlight has just uh, just emerged, which is to know that Anne-Marie's got a, a cross-sausage uh, dog, uh, Jack Russell puppy, and that's the highlight of my week. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, we start this week, not with COVID for a change, but with a new report from the Policy Connect Higher Education Commission. Arriving at Thriving uh, highlights the work that still needs to be done to support the full participation of disabled students in HE. Anne-Marie, tell us more. Thanks, Jim. Um, so this is a new report from Policy Connect's HE Commission. Um, it is called, very catchily, Arriving at Thriving. Uh, it's a great report. And, and what I really like about it is it's genuinely listened to student perspective. Um, It's got 12 recommendations that are right across the student life cycle. And these recommendations uh, really ensure that disabled students can fully participate in HE. And what's particularly interesting about the report is that it's very clear that there's a benefit for all students when we ensure that we get it right for disabled students. Ian, it's interesting, the report, I think, because there's a few moments in it where the recommendations talk about a need to focus on outputs. But of course, most of our regulation, certainly in England, focuses on outcomes. Absolutely. Uh, the report is, is is really interesting and actually it needs to be given much more prominence than I think it's likely to get in these in these times, which is a great shame. The um, the point that Anne-Marie just made in, in introduction there about the fact that all of our students benefit from 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 making sure that we are properly accessible. I don't mean accessible in a just a physical sense, but 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 thinking about our policies and procedures and the way in which we 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 look after each other and so on. Uh, so it's really important, and actually, we need to give it more prominence than it's currently got. And Marie, this thing about um, you know the kind of deficit model that it talks about. I mean, should we spend more of our time helping disabled students to kind of navigate and access 
uh, HE? Or, or actually, should our focus be on sort of everyone around disabled students, you know, administrators and support staff and academics? Because it doesn't half paint a picture of a sector that appears to not really understand the needs of this group of students. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really nice about the 12 recommendations is that they're, they're sort of a balanced portfolio. Um, so some of them are, um, you know, pointed at student behaviours and uh, particularly around social belonging. It's fellow students who help you to feel like you belong at an institution, not necessarily, uh, the, you know, the administrator uh, that, that you interact with. So some of them are around student behaviours. But I think the, the the bigger aim here is to really get institutions and the regulator moving on on some very clear uh, improvements for, for disabled students. I think particularly for professional services um, listeners, this idea around the burden of bureaucracy. Um, I mean, university systems are hard for, for most students, in, in my experience. They're particularly hard uh, for students uh, f- who, who have disabilities. So I think there's a lot of valuable takeaways for institutions. And I guess what's really nice is it's got a joined up approach outside of an institution as well. Uh, so it talks about these joined up plans for each stage of a student life cycle, maybe when a student is a, a pupil at school or college and then moving through to the labour market. And that's really got to be the, the ultimate aim of the game, right? To have a joined up approach uh, across all those sectors. Ian, uh, obviously we're in the middle of a, of, of a global pandemic at this point. Are you, are you getting any sense that, you know, the, 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 the needs here, particularly for disabled students uh, in relation to access are changing? Because some people tell me that, you know, things are getting actually much better for disabled students suddenly you know everyone is agreeing to lecture capture where some disabled students were lobbying for that for years but other people are telling me that actually new needs and new disabilities are coming to the surface um, there, you know each time we we make progress on on, on something uh, we make progress in in one direction or another what we need to really now do and i think the report is saying is is think about it in in all of those directions and make you know make sure that we understand the impact that one's going to have on on another I think one of the first things that we really need to do, and universities absolutely, and not just universities, but society more widely, we need to make it um, absolutely the case that people feel able to 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 be who they are and to uh, and to uh, discuss their disability. It's still the case that disability is vastly underreported in in, in universities and, and the very wide range of disability. Um, so, so that I think is really uh, really important. We then absolutely, as uh, as Anne Marie said, you know, this idea of belonging, and it is your fellow students who create that belonging. But I, I think Anne Marie would also agree that it is the the institution's um, responsibility to create an environment in which belonging is. Um, you know, it, it, you know, tolerance, understanding, and, and leading on to a broader belonging is, is something that institutionally we we get in the way of, if if not uh, help sometimes. So I, I think we have a role to play in making sure that our systems, our processes, the policies. You know, we need to review our policies from a perspective of are are, are they are they excluding people? Are they keeping people out? Um, and then make, make sure that we do something about it. And then finally, on the on the administrative side. We need, I think, in my view, to start flipping the whole system upside down. You know, the way in which we we require people to demonstrate or prove um, uh, things to do with either their disability or many other aspects of their life. You know, there's we, we need to build a sort of, I know this is hopelessly idealistic, but uh, anyway, a, a sort of a much more trust-based sort of approach to, um, uh, to to that sort of administrative process, because that will allow us then to to bring people in rather than to keeping people out. And Marie, the other thing that that, that, that I was kind of reflecting on this morning, because I was uh, summarising it actually for students' unions this morning, I was looking at it thinking 
there's a lot of stuff that happens in kind of access and participation work where you know people will listen to the voices of students the you know the lived experience of students and they'll synthesize it and make recommendations and the reality is i think that a lot of those recommendations are nice to haves and it's probably mildly impossible for an individual academic or an individual department or whatever to implement every recommendation to do with kind of access and participation that everyone has ever come up with you know a lot of it is you know kind of do your best but but it strikes me that some of this stuff isn't about nice to haves it's about rights it's about things that kind of have to be there and i i wonder whether higher education tends to view in particular this stuff for disabled students through the optic of rights and whether students themselves understand their rights i think that's a really interesting um, way of approaching it jim uh, i mean some of these recommendations uh, that, that we see in the 12 recommendations they're, they're pretty basic things so you know looking at affordable accommodation for example um and, and these are hygiene factors really for students getting on uh, and thriving at university um i think i think you're right um, I, I'm really pleased to see universities taking a more relational approach, listening to students, uh, continually improving by sort of having that really close feedback loop uh, and building a more relational university. Um, I guess that does take some of the bite out, right, in terms of demanding your rights as an individual student or more importantly, I think, as a collective uh, of students. So um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a real paradox here for, for student unions and how they approach it. One of the recommendations is around student unions and, and I think it's a, an appropriate challenge as a former student union president, I know we could have done better uh, back in the day in terms of what we were doing. So a real focus here for, for student union leaders uh, and people who work in the unions as well. And, and, and you know, there's a danger that uh, people don't read this at this point in the middle of a pandemic, isn't there? Um, I, I mean, one of the things we could do, Jim, is just a bit of a call to action. Like, if you're listening to this podcast, please, can you promote this report? It's brilliant. It deserves more pickup. Email it around your institution, share it with colleagues, tweet about it. Um, it's not getting enough pickup. And, and as Ian says, it deserves more attention. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name is Paul Greitrix. I'm registrar at the University of Nottingham and also a regular contributor to Wonky. My latest post was all about university clock towers and the development of an exciting, of course, completely made up ranking of university clock towers. We've looked recently at university tunnels as well as tallest universities in the world, so clock towers seemed an obvious next step. I have uh, a close affinity to clock towers as a university uh, of Nottingham clock tower in the Trent building is almost directly above my office and I therefore feel really passionately about them. But if you've got a favourite clock tower, you'll be excited to see where it appears, if at all, in this latest ranking. Now, do you remember all that talk of new providers disrupting the market and offering students choice? Well, uh, DK has news. If five blokes in a WeWork near London Fields can go from a startup to a provider with degree awarding powers, university title and OFS registration in less than four months, what does this say about entry to the English HE sector? On one level, not much. Regents University London Limited is still effectively Regents University London. It's the same buildings, the same staff and the same courses. The predecessor institution gained teaching degree awarding powers in 2012 and university title in 2013. It became an established part of the diverse university sector. But it is now a company limited by shares rather than a charity, and it's owned by a multinational higher education chain. There is guidance in the regulatory framework about where a university is restructured or comes under new ownership, but there's nothing that covers this situation the new company has effectively bought the assets and undertakings of the old charity, which include, it seems, the university title and degree awarding powers. 
If you look on the OFS register, the new company gained these things in 2020, basically last week. There are processes that must be followed in the award of new DAPs and university title and in registering with OFS, including inspections to determine quality and due diligence. As things sit currently, it's not clear that any of these things have happened. As far as we have heard, for instance, the QAA has not been involved in any of the three separate processes that it should technically have been involved in. Perhaps there's not much new risk in what just happened. The risk comes in the precedence that this may set. What would happen if another established English provider was effectively asset stripped in a less sensitive manner? What would the OFS response be? Amarit, do you get any sense that students are clamouring for kind of diversity and difference, you know, two-year degrees and challenger providers? Or is it that, you know, over the next 10 years, we just need to be having the hard conversation about expansion? Yeah, I mean, I've worked with um, young people and mature learners accessing HE for many years now, and I always describe them as in two tribes, right? So uh, we have these students who are are very much looking for what I would call like a traditional, like, uh, modern of HE, they're, they're thinking, uh, you know, of the, the higher education we see in films and, and, you, and you read about in books. And, and so they're really seeking that. And then you've got another uh, set of students who are, are really a, a little bit more um, sort of adventurous in terms of what they're thinking about. Um, they're, they're looking for something a little bit different. They're looking for that distinguishing factor. Um, I can't say they're looking for a type of institution, though. They're looking for a type of course or a type of provision. They're not thinking, oh, I want a different type of university. I've never encountered a student who said that to me. I want a company limited by guarantee. Well, quite, quite. Um, so so, so I, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I think what's absolutely critical is that students have complete... Uh, clarity about who is providing their education, who is the accrediting body and how the, the organisation is set up. Um, because for the average student looking at the prospectus, will it be clear who is providing their degree uh, if they enrol at one of these institutions? That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line for me. Ian, you're, you work at an institution which I think, um, you know, on balance is pretty damn innovative in terms of kind of, you know, legal forms and, you know, types of provision and so on. Where, should we be looking to kind of the, the, these kind of small, uh, often privately owned uh, uh, sort of operations to generate our diversity? Or should there be sort of more celebration of an encouragement of more traditional providers to, to kind of innovate in 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 some of these spaces Uh, i think the really boring answer jim is that both of those things but you know i I, i'm not going to say that either um private or uh, public institutions are better or worse i think um so long you know the point amory makes is that that learners are looking for a type of learning an, an approach of subject access that fits the way in which they're living their lifestyle. I always talk about, you know, over the last few months, we've been talking lots and lots and lots about online learning and, uh, and the role of online learning. I think the one thing that we really need to understand about online learning is that it's not one thing either. You know, you've got the online for committed online learners, those people who intend to be on online for their degree. The learner who wants to study some of their degree online and using online on camp for on-campus learners. There's another group of learners, and, and Amory talks about them when she mentions um, mature learners, I think, that, um, you know, where, where the uh, access to the qualification um, and skills in a uh, shorter time as possible in many cases, because this is about career move, moving on in career. It's, I can't stop my job because I've got a family to run. I've got a family to, to finance. Um, and so there's, there's all sorts of development that needs to happen. If that comes because we've got 
some diversity in different types of providers. Uh, that's, that, that's, I think, a good thing. There needs to be absolute honesty and transparency about um, about who's running those things and, uh, you know, and about whether it's for profit or, or not for profit uh, and so on. Um, Coventry, certainly, we have a bit of a reputation for, for, for some innovation. I'm very proud of the fact that we, you know, in uh, 2011, 12, set up uh, uh, Coventry University College model, which is lower cost and the sort of wide access uh, institution, almost open access uh, type institution. Um, I have to say, we, we did have conversations in the, in the, in the old days before the, uh, the act with BIS about whether uh, the idea of the university owning, running the university and uh, owning this uh, subsidiary entity, whether it could have degree awarding powers. And at that time, it sort of blew people's minds that the idea that a university would want degree awarding powers in two different, two different places. Um, but actually, there is something to be said in my mind about the organisational structure directs um, the way in which you're able to offer education, the way in which you're able to put things together. So I, I do think there's, there's some importance uh, to, to this um, uh, and that diversity of offer to the students. So long as they're getting a fair and honest uh, view of what that is, is, is really important. Anne-Marie, I mean, just reflecting on that, Anne-Marie, I mean, you, you, you know, talked about, you know, students needing to be clear about kind of, you know, who, who's providing it and who owns and so on. I, you know, imagine in five years' time, right, there's, I don't know, say, seven or eight, uh, traditional higher education providers that have been taken over by the private sector because they got into trouble. And, you know, ha the, the taxpayer and students having pumped money into them as kind of, you know, charities for donkey's years have suddenly found themselves in trouble and the private sector has bought, you know, what are effectively degree awarding powers in order to make money out of a subsidised student loan scheme. That doesn't feel right. But, you know, does it matter? Does it matter who provides higher education in the private or public sector or quasi-public sector? Is it just the outcomes and the provision that matter? Or should we be worried about kind of who in the end owns our higher education sector? Oh, this is such a great question, Jim. In some ways, it reminds me of what we've seen um, in, in the school sector with academisation and uh, some of the changes there over the past decade or so. Um, and it, it's not dissimilar a proposition when you phrase it like that. Um, I think we should be concerned, um, not because we're allergic to private sector, um, but more because it matters, uh, our institutions and their health really matters. Um, we, we live in an age where our institutions are essentially uh, corroding. Um, uh, our universities are very precious um, and they're public institutions and they play a unique role in, in our democratic uh, narrative and, and the way we go about um, uh, being a society together. So I think we should be concerned about that. I also think we should just be concerned around any, any sense of... Um, circumnavigating all of our quality assurance um, procedures and all of the arrangements with the OFS. You know, they're there for a reason uh, and that's to safeguard um, uh, our students but, and, and, and our staff but also to safeguard uh, our public institutions. Um, so I think, it, I think it really does matter. Um, I think it's broader than who owns what and how our institutions run. We're really talking about the very nature of civil society and what happens when we lose some of those redwoods of civil society that our, our universities are um, because the values are different in terms of uh, you know the different sectors and I guess it comes back to this you know consistently sort of thorny grey issue which is are our institutions public are they private are they a mix of the two are they a charity you know I, 
I guess ultimately, if I'm a taxpayer, as I am, I'm thinking, we've put a lot of money into these institutions. We've sunk a lot of costs and I don't want to lose all of those wonderful resources and infrastructure that we have around a university and that essentially are owned by the people. Now, every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. Starting, as we often do with these things, with the Robbins Report, we're looking at the situation that pertained in England for places that didn't have their own degree of warning powers between the 60s and the 90s. So the Robbins Report looked at the condition of the Colleges of Advanced Technology, and they'd had a setup whereby they'd had a National Council for Technological Awards to support their awards, which were Diploma in Technology. And Robbins saw that and thought that was a good idea for regulating the rest of the sector. At the time, the only way you could have degrees if you weren't at your own university is to apply to London to award their degrees. And that was fine, but it meant you had to train to their exams, which was constraining. So Robbins recommended that the old National Council for Technological Awards should become a council for national academic awards, covering the whole of Great Britain. They went on to say that it would contribute to the standing of the council and of its awards if it could be established under a royal charter, and it was, and it would allow degrees to be awarded, and not the Diploma of Technology. And so it was set up. The council had um, a different approach because it approved courses leading to degrees. Its objectives were to ensure the quality of teaching, to set out a sense of the student's environment, and it included peer review at its heart. This meant the validation of courses. A visiting panel would come at first with a very external membership, but increasingly an internal membership, creating a definitive course document. It also had a system of institutional approval beforehand. Institutions had to be checked, they had to be visited, and those visits could be bruising. Places were rejected. Uh, It provided, in the end, a model for accreditation, but they were looking for cohesive and self-critical academic communities. Note that that's a phrase that continues to this day in the degree awarding power criteria. It stressed the importance of academic governance, with a lot of attention fixed on the academic board. Harold Silver, who's written a history, only a history, he says, but, but effectively now the only history of the CNAA. Um, and he looked at some examples. For example, a polytechnic, which we'll leave nameless at the moment, um, had a visit in 1978. The visiting party was horrified. They dropped their agenda for the second day and went through all the problems they'd found in the institution. This eventually got leaked into the national press and the director had to leave. So bad was the state. But the second attempt uh, the academic board was reasserted, uh, reasserted, was given its authority in the right place, um, and the institution went on from strength to strength. Howard Silver looks at various examples of the work of the CNAA and how actually its committees, the body that looked at the curriculum, effectively shaped the curriculum, and to some extent you can say they actually shaped the subject as it's taught in this country. For example, uh, when the CNAA took on the work of the Diploma of Management Studies, it clearly was a way that uh, the business studies subject came of age. The way CNAA developed it, shaped curriculum across the whole range of institutions, meant that there was a common understanding of business studies. Business studies grew into a separate area of work. Now, of course, it's the largest area that uh, HESA uh, counts as a subject. It comes from that development of the CNAA. So the CNAA went around validating courses up and down the country, um, allowing institutions to grow, uh, sometimes to struggle through that process, but it sets in place. But that all ended at the binary line. Uh, it stopped, um, uh, but its legacy is easy to spot in former institutions. 
there's an argument that you can step into a, a former CNA institution and you find yourself easily at home in their structures and systems. They work towards credit or the, the way that they approve courses or reapprove them. But it also had a legacy beyond that. A lot of its work was taken forward in HEQC uh, and then cemented in the Deering Report with things like program specifications and credit agreements, which to some extent we're still working on now. So the legacy of the CNAA, Council for National Academic Awards, uh, is an important one in the sector and one that we remember well. Now then, Advance HE has released a new report this week into the diversity of governors at universities in the UK. Anne-Marie, does the diversity fish rot from the head? Um, So this is uh, the first ever report looking at the equality characteristics of our university governors in the UK. Um, It's by Advance HE. They've got a data set of around 3,500 university governors. And and here are a few of the headlines. Uh, Nearly 42% of our governors are women. Uh, Nine out of 10 of our governors are white. Uh, 5.4% of our governors uh, are disabled. Um, But maybe here's the kicker. Over 20% of our institutions have no BME uh, governing body members at all. Um, And one of the really interesting things is the role of um, student governors. Um, They are really bringing the noise when it comes to diversity on our governing bodies. Um, So they tend to basically bring the the governing body um, uh, to become younger, uh, to become more diverse, both in terms of gender uh, and race. So they're really bringing the diversity to our governing bodies. And isn't that a great thing? It's symptomatic of of the state of not only governance, but also... uh, um, institutional leadership um, and in many ways uh, the institutions uh, all, all the way through so it stands out in the sense that this is deeply depressing but 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 not surprising unfortunately and and, and um, it's good to know but but now we need to uh, really get on with the action plans of, of, of making this change you know the positive action that will allow us to recruit people I'm not talking about discrimination, but positive action that will allow us to recruit people that, that you know, we, we know we're stronger when we have diversity of view and, uh, and challenge and, uh, and the opportunity to discuss. So uh, we, we've got to get on with this right now. Hey, Ian, I don't think it's depressing. I think this is really heartening because um, obviously I've moved sectors. I used to work in a university. I've, I've moved to the charity sector. Compared to board of trustees in the charity sector, um, th- this, this is really great, um, particularly on age. You know, 3%, 3% of charity trustees are below the age of 27. Yeah. So, so universities... Yeah, yeah, most of them are sabbatical officers in student well, quite, unions. Yeah. Quite. Um, uh, I, guess, I guess there's a, there's a, there's a few things here. Um, if, you, if you also compare it to, to school governing bodies... Uh, there's a report out by um, NFER and the National Governors Association and, and you know, universities are outstripping those organisations in terms of diversity as well. So, yes, there's more work to be done. But when we compare ourselves to other education institutions or charitable organisations, universities have a relatively positive story to tell here. That doesn't excuse the things we need to improve on. But, you know, just to set it in context, this is poss- possibly quite a positive story for unis. I, I take I take that I take the point. Uh, you know, it's well made. However, you know, we've been talking about it for a very long time, uh, and I really don't think we've um, we've made the progress. Well, I know we haven't made the progress that we really we ought to. And that's not a criticism of our governing bodies or or, or anything else. You know, it, it's um, it, it's it's double depressing that, that 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 this is not depressing. If you like, <laughs> that the charity sector is even more depressing. That's it's just. It's just not, you know. I go, I go out into into my community, my student community, um, and you know, I'm, I'm an all white guy, and I, I need to, I, I need to get some voice around that that allows us to understand what's going on and where the future is, and how, how to how to build the future. Do you think we just need to expand the size of governing bodies? No, yeah, because... absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, 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 please no. 
no, because that just makes it that that just makes that 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 just almost fudges the issue. You know, um, what we want are the the are great people from 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 a wide group of backgrounds. What we don't have enough of it's 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 perhaps improving in some places. It's improved a lot. But what we don't have is enough of pipeline into into those applications. We don't have whole groups of people feeling able that, that this is for them, and, and that's what's wrong with it. Anne Marie, though, does this does what? Why does this matter, really? So, you know, the leadership is presumably really important so that people can see people that are like them being successful. But most governing bodies are pretty invisible, and you know, most governing bodies are basically just kind of looking at numbers and, you know, asking the odd tricky question of senior managers, aren't they? I mean, it doesn't really matter that they're diverse, does it? Oh, come on. You know it matters, Jim. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, It really matters who's... I mean, I can rehearse you all the arguments about why diverse boards make better decisions, but but for me, it's really about future-proofing your institution. If you want to turn and face the modern world, you need a diverse uh, group of governors who can make great decisions for the the students and staff um, that you serve. Um, so we, we know it's important. And also, I just think um, there's nothing worse than a, a governing body that's pretty monocultural. Um, it, you know, it, it just is such a better quality of discussion when we have folks from all different perspectives. Um, and, and I guess what disappoints me a little bit about the report, and it's hard, I get it, it's hard. There's nothing in here about socioeconomic background. And considering widening participation is one of the major challenges for universities, we need put more people with lived experience of, of growing up um, in, in low-income households and, and making it through to university. Ian, is there something about the way this is done? Because, because you know, one of the things I I, I, I I remember about, you know, kind of being involved in FE governance when I was on a further education college board was there were a number of kind of national initiatives. You know, there was a, there was a national recruitment portal. Uh, there was lots of kind of very overt public talk about diversity. I mean, I have no idea. I actually genuinely, I have no idea how you become a governor in HE. What, what happens? Does someone sort of you know, sidle up to you and tap you on the shoulder at the Rotary? Um, well, I certainly hope not, and, and certainly not the case at Coventry, but who knows uh, what goes on in some places. Um, I, I, cer- I certainly hope not, no. The, um, w- we advertise, um, you know, publicly through um, through our own channels uh, as well as externally. Um, we use organisations like Advantage and the Good Governance Institute to, to, to review these these processes. There is some use of search agents who specialise in, um, in governance, but I, you know that's also um, a question about um, the nature and the way in the way in which those search agencies are built up, actually, and about their um, about their focus. Um, I think it's absolutely on the agenda of, of most governing bodies, certainly the ones that I'm aware of, that they uh, they understand that by um, enhancing their diversity, they change the culture of the way in which the conversation takes place. So there isn't just you know, a few people in a dark room sort of having a uh, having a few difficult questions of the of the senior leadership and looking at some figures. They should be much more than that. In fact, our governing bodies now are responsible for signing off the the academic quality statements. You know, each year, that's it's one of the things yeah. that terrifies them uh, in many ways. Anne Marie, let me just run this past you. Right, I've I've got a kind of thought experiment for for for, for thirty seconds. So. I suspect that lots of governing bodies say to themselves, it's a bit like the village people, right? We need a finance person, a legal person, a person that's really good on strategic HR and so on. And the problem with that approach is you, you are recruiting from the professions. And what we know about the professions is that they don't, uh, they're not very diverse. So, you know, even when we look at the institutions that supply the people that go into the professions, what we don't know is whether the students in those institutions are, you know, the, you know, the diverse ones 
problems in those institutions are then going in, into the professions. You know, is is the law department in a Russell Group university as diverse as every other department and so on? Should governing bodies give up a little bit on this, you know, village people style as an HR person, a finance person and so on, and instead seek to sort of train those skills... And, and and have as their first, you know, thought, no, we should just get a really broad base of perspectives and perhaps more education people. I don't know. I mean, what's more important? I think that's a great question. So you've generally seen um, across a range of sectors this um, movement towards skills-based uh, recruitment of, 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 you know, school governors or trustees or of um, members of governing bodies. And, you know, I guess that's been great in some ways and it's been really heavily promoted. But what you have lost is um, a range of experiences. Uh, and so what I encourage people to do is, yeah, OK, I understand you need particular skill sets. You know, I run a charity where, you know, we're very keen to have trained accountant on the board. We're very keen to have um, folks with legal expertise. But actually, how are you accounting for experience? Because that's what you need on a board right now. So, for example, at the Brilliant Club, we're just about to um, carry out an open recruitment process uh, and being very particular about needing folks who've got lived experience, but also some of the new skill sets. I think it's very traditional to say, oh, we need legal, we need accounting. Yeah, you do need those, but actually you really need someone who understands digital transformation right now. You really need someone who knows how to um, get about the communications piece. Uh, you, re- you know, for some organisations, you really need people who know how to do incredible um, outreach activities. So thinking a little bit more broad-mindedly about the experiences you need, because you're right, whilst ever we recruit from a very um, uh, stratified um, set of professions, we will continue to, to see some of these um, patterns in who gets to be a governor. And um, particularly on the treasurer, you know, all, pretty much all treasurers you, you come across uh, in, in, in the charity sector and on university governing bodies, they tend to be male, right? Um, and so you've got a structural disadvantage there to bring in through diversity. So being a bit more broad-minded about the skill set and critically the experiences you need on your board, I really think that's a sweet spot. Good. Well, now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, proud to be fully GDPR compliant. In data analysis, it's always fun to do things you're told not to do. So I thought I'd compare graduate outcomes data with the most recent Delhi dataset. I'm looking at graduates from all undergraduate programs in full-time employment and our further study by provider. But remember, I'm looking in the case of Delhi, a data collected six months after graduation for the 2016-17 year, and for graduate outcomes, 18 months after graduation for the 17-18 year. But is there a correlation between the official statistics for 2016-17 and those for 2017-18? Does it correlate? I'm... I have a, a very uh, yeah, private view, let's say. I'm certainly not going to reveal it here. Uh, I think um, it will be very interesting to see what that correlation or lack of correlation demonstrates. I'm going to say it doesn't correlate, Jim, because in life I tend to just basically bias towards things don't correlate because... Uh they tend to not um, uh, in my experience of running various data science and, and, and randomised control trials so I'm going to say no, no, no correlation Surprisingly the answer is no R squared is 0.035 so there's almost no correlation there's lots of reasons why this might be a different survey with a different collection methodology after all but the graph is absolutely fascinating Overwhelmingly, the shift to graduate outcomes methodology flatters the Russell Group in comparison to the rest of the sector. But in nearly all cases, providers do worse in the graduate outcomes data than in Delhi. 
on this measure, which is full-time employment and or further study. The data comes from HESA, and where the data doesn't exist in both measures, I've not plotted it. Now, finally, it's been Conservative Party conference over the past few days, uh, and uh, Gavin Williamson held a fireside chat. Ian, have you been uh, warming your marshmallows on this one? No, I, I, this this really um, it didn't uh, it didn't catch my attention very much this uh, particular point. But the bit that did catch my attention is the um, is the uh, the fringe event at the Conservative Party conference, the uh, the Scottish uh, Education League, Douglas Ross, um, dropping the quietly and very quietly on the edge uh, the opposition to free tuition in Scotland. Is this a, a move in a, in a particular direction, I wonder? Yeah, now this was interesting, right? So if you go into it and you really scratch Anne-Marie, right? So the headline is, you know, the Tories in Scotland. Yeah, all right, look, look. The, the, the headline is the Tories in Scotland have dropped their opposition and, you know, have dro- you know, they, they, you know, fair enough, free education. But it's accompanied by a sort of slightly more extreme version of the kind of debate around Orga, insofar as, I mean, there are probably too many people going to university. So, you know, we should, <laughs> we'll have some free places, but we'd better restrict them and everyone else can go somewhere else. So, you know, that, it, it might not be that far away from the sort of stuff that could be coming in England uh, as it looks. Uh, it's a good question, Jim. <laughs> um, I, think, I think you're right to draw out that there's some sort of foreshadowing of Orga-style uh, approach to, to, to higher education funding. Um, you know, we've long known that um, any restriction on student numbers, that's the real structural barrier to widening participation. So um, it, it's great to hear that they're evolving their um, stance on, uh, you know, funding of higher education in Scotland. But actually, we should really be pressing on, well, what's, what's, what's your position on widening participation? How does that help um, with some of these big challenges in HE? Ian, we've obviously had a summer of, uh, to some extent, I think, mixed messaging around uh, widening participation and widening access. I mean, what's your kind of sense of where we are right now well i uh what, what, what's my sense of where we are right now I, well I, th- I think the point about um you know capping numbers we had a, a little bit of an attempt at that in summer did we not in the, and that was very quickly sort of abandoned because it it wasn't going to work so i i i'm not sure um I'm not sure there's any clarity about um, uh, the, the policy position that, that from anyone at the moment about this. That the ability to take away um, access to funding, you know, the only the only tool they seem to have is to allow the 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 the, the, the price to erode and, and the, therefore the amount of funding going to universities to erode because taking away the number of places, um, you know, in, in all of those towns in the north that I'm very fond of because I come from uh, from them um, that would would lead to that institution being sort of really heavily affected because we know that in in many places um the university serves a very much more local and regional community so um i, I just don't think there's a political sort of will to to, to do that yet there's there's also then the, the financial pressures and all, all of those other considerations so um I, I think we're in a bit of a policy mess at the moment and uh, what we really need is uh, is some 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 sort of clarity about um uh, how we are going to equip people uh, one allow them to have the opportunities that they all deserve and two to equip people and our local regions communities and, and so on to to have the skills that they need in order to become powerful economies mm. and uh, you know i heard nick nick hillman talking over summer about the you know not only should we not be abandoning the 50 percent, but actually we should be moving on with that and, and, and being much more ambitious so i, 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 I support that 
Jim, it's been a very confusing time for, for widening, the widening participation community. So we sort of saw this move to say, you know, too, too many folks are going to uni. We want to focus on student outcomes. So we're all thinking, oh, well, this is a bit of a, uh, you know, a, an about turn in terms of where we've seen policy recently. Um, and, and then obviously we have the exams crisis. Uh, and essentially what we see is a, a, a call for, for contextualised admissions on a mass scale, um, uh, expansion of numbers um, and, and removal of the student number controls. Um, so it's been a very discombobulated late in time, uh, not just for widening participation practitioners, but for, you know, the, the, the broader university community around where, where, where the current education leadership um, in government sits on this issue. Um, there's, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind uh, from me. One, we've seen this recent um, sort of um, uh, uptick in conversations about white working class boys uh, not making it to university and, and the BBC article that sort of um, brought that to the fore. Uh, and Gavin Williamson's comments, that is a, sh- a shocking disgrace. I mean, to be honest, there's nothing shocking about it. Um, we've known about this for, for decades um, and, and it's been uh, high on the agenda for some of us working in, in the sector. I think the second thing is this idea that too many people are going to university and, 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 and you know, folks should be doing other forms of learning, apprenticeships, et cetera, et cetera, on the job training. Um, I think is, 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 is very, sits very uncomfortably with the levelling up agenda. And I think it's a misreading uh, of what folks in, in Redwall uh, communities uh, like mine in Doncaster uh, want from life. Um, they don't see university in opposition to those things. There's just not enough of any of it uh, in a place like Doncaster. Um, so I think it's a very muddled landscape at the moment. I'm hoping we can start to bring some clarity through um, post-COVID because, you know, widening participation is one of the main ways we're going to be able to rebuild the economy uh, when we come out of COVID. Let me ask you both. So Lord Adonis, uh, you know, the highly popular higher education commentator, um, <laughs> amongst other roles that he has in life, the other day tweeted... For example, Amory, when you're talking about Doncaster, uh, that one of the failures of the last uh, Labour government was not to, you know, build a university in a town like Doncaster. And I pointed out to him on Twitter, because I'm one of the few people in HE he hasn't blocked, uh, that, you know, there's a university centre in Doncaster that's run by the local FE college. Now, you know, if I do a tin pot David Goodhart for a minute... Um, should I have left Walsall and done an HE course at Walsall College? Or was I right to leave Walsall and go go to university in a kind of moderately traditional way? I mean, what's the answer over the next 10 years? Honestly, Jim, can I have an, a whole podcast to talk about this? Because it, it, <laughs> it drives me absolutely batty. Yeah, Doncaster, has, uh, Doncaster College has 5,000 learners in higher education. So this idea that, one, we don't have a university, um, but two, too many people are going to university in that area. I mean, everything just starts to clash very, very loudly uh, in this debate around Goodhart and this idea that you have to leave home to get on in life. I think what we're really missing is like a democratic and empowering narrative about social mobility. Listen, if you go to university, it doesn't just improve your life, it improves your entire family's life. And that's what I always tell, you know, I always say to kids that I work with uh, and when I talk to kids in Doncaster as well. When I went to university, it absolutely changed the opportunities that were available for my family uh, and for my siblings and for my cousins and everyone around me. It's not an individualized selfish thing to go to university to fulfill your potential and to go on and get a great job. And I think the more we drive into that narrative, the more it harms young people. Um, But but David Goodhart's stuff, he shows a great degree of anxiety about places like Doncaster. And I sometimes wonder, has he ever actually visited? You pose a question, Jim, in a a particular way, which says, should you have gone away or should you have stayed in Warsaw? Well, actually, both of those things need to be possible. And the the way in which we... uh, we understand, you know, parity of esteem of uh, of, uh, of qualification and, and and so on. So it's not just a question of 
we, we need the provision in all of those places to be able to serve all sorts of different types of learner and different types of community in the ways that they want to be served rather than the way in which we uh, deign to serve them. Uh, but but equally, we need, we need to have an argument uh, with um, all of those people that believe that X is better than Y and, you know, trying to it's the conversation we had earlier about uh, disabled students in, 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 in another way. It's about uh, trying to diminish someone else in order to, uh, to, to aggrandize myself. And that's, that, that's, that's a conversation we've got to fight with uh, policymakers and the professions and all sorts of other people because we're much stronger as a, as a whole rather than as, uh, as lots of individuals. Yeah, this this sort of versus narrative is is so unhealthy, and uh, you know I've got personal skin in this game because you know I went to university first in family. Um, my younger brother became an apprentice, um, and this idea that the two of us are pitted against each other, um, and actually it's very pertinent to the white working class boys debate because the level of vitriol um, I, I got talking about the white working class boys stuff. I'm, I'm trying to look up the particular um, quote that someone tweeted at me, you know, say say you know, as sort of. Um, uh, being patronised and a whole range of other things that ain't that ain't where I'm coming from I want a good option for my brother and I want a good option for me um, both of those routes uh, need to be available in places like Doncaster the idea that you, you do down higher education access and, and, and that automatically dials up how many folks get apprenticeships and other forms of learning you know we need to strengthen both of those um, pathways for, for kids in Donny So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Ian and Marie, everyone back at the ranch for making it happen. The virtual ranch, of course. And until next week, stay wonky. (laughs) 